0: Let me say a word of prayer for you seated. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to get together with other men and study your word. And as we begin this new series in the book of James, I just pray that you would uh, open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to hear and to see what you would want to say to us. Uh, Father, uh, take this day and use it for you. Take our lives and use them for you. And uh, every, every guy in this room has uh, a burden, has an issue, has a care, a concern uh, that they're bringing into this room. And, and I just uh, ask that you would help them lay that aside right now and just sit before you and allow you to minister to them through your Holy Spirit. And, uh, Father, may their lives be changed because they've been with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, we're going to start our study this morning. And we're going to talk about real faith for real life. You know, there's a, there's a phrase, the only way to tell the difference between a boy and a man is the price of his toys. You've heard that. And this morning, we're talking about, uh, as we enter into the book of James, you know, we haven't done a book study in forever. Uh, we've done a lot of topical studies, and we're going to get into the book of James. And so this is going to be a Bible study uh, like we haven't done in a long time. As a matter of fact... I look back and it was, uh, we taught the book of James, or I taught the book of James back in 2000. Uh, and so many of you weren't around in 2000. Um, some of you were. But we're going to go back and revisit the book of James. And we're going to take it just kind of verse by verse as we move through it. And uh, it's going to be a traditional Bible study where we're going to look at what this book has to say to us. And this morning is going to be introduction to the book of James. But really, the, the issue is one of maturity. And you'll see more of that as we kind of unload this. But you may have had people say to you, as I've had say to me, things like, why don't you grow up? And it, they didn't stop saying that when I was in my teens or in my 20s. Um, I still hear that occasionally. Why don't, why don't you just, why don't you grow up? Why don't you act your age? Um, You've heard that. You've heard people tell you to grow up. They've told you, you know, you're just a big overgrown kid. Um, You know, you're so immature. Um, My wife, as I've told you, you know, she's always wanted to make me a T-shirt that says, what parents do in moderation, children do to excess. And she wants me to wear it because uh, anything my kids do that is not appropriate, they suddenly become my kids. Um, Well, your son... You know he did, and I'm like, why is he why is he my son all of a sudden? Well, because of what he did. And my my kids have picked up a lot of my bad habits, and and they tend to act in ways that are kind of embarrassing sometimes, and it's usually something they learn from me. I'll never forget one time, and in in, walked into the kitchen, and uh, my son said something extremely sarcastic to my wife, and I heard it. And I responded to it and I said, You do not talk to your mother that way. And he goes, Well, you do. (laughs) And she just, uh, the look in her face was just classic. She just, you know, that kind of, you know. And I said, And the words came out of my mouth before I had time to think, which happens a lot. And I I said, Well, you got to learn better timing. (laughs) And uh, my wife says, What? I said, well, no, that's not what I meant. And (laughs) next thing I know, I was in a deeper hole, but um, he and I did have a little talk after that. Um, He's picking up my bad habits. And this idea of maturity and immaturity and, you know, a lot of us are just overgrown kids. And that's not necessarily real healthy in just life, but it's certainly not healthy when it comes to living the Christian life, to live in immaturity and to live as if you're just a kid. And we're going to look at some passages this morning that have to do with that. You know, if you think about you know, phrases like, why don't you grow up? Why are you so immature? Why don't you act your age? What, what kind of people are those comments directed at? What are the characteristics of those kind of people? What's it, what, why would somebody say that to somebody like that? Because they're acting like a kid. They're, acting, they're not acting their age. They're, not, they're acting immaturely. And that's why you would say that. And again, it's like a man who's so obsessed with toys and he's just acting like a kid. Uh, In the book of James, we're going to find out, it's all about spiritual maturity. It's all about kind of growing up. And especially for us as as Christian men, there's a need for us to step it up and to realize that we have been called to something greater. And, And the book of James is a highly practical book. But the truth is, not everyone who grows old grows up, right? We can get older, but not necessarily grow in maturity, uh, either spiritually or the way we act. Uh, and so it's important for us to understand. I used to think that, you know, when I was in junior high, that when I got into high school, I would get over all the bad habits I had. And then I got into high school, and I just developed more of them. And then I thought, well, when I get into college, I'll get my act together, and I'll act more mature, and I'll be more spiritual, and I'll I'll love to have a quiet time, and I'll wake up in the morning more spiritual. Well, it didn't happen. Uh, And then when I got into college, I thought, well, when I get out of college and I get my job, then I'll get serious about life, and I'll get more mature, and then I'll probably get married. You know, I was always delaying the process. So when do we start this maturity process? When do we really start to grow up as believers and as men? And that's what we want to talk about over the next weeks. There's a real big difference, guys, between age and maturity. And you know that. That's, that's nothing new to you. Uh, just because your hair is gray or just because your hair has fallen out does not mean you're more mature. It doesn't make you mature. Age does not necessarily bring maturity. It should, but it doesn't always. And especially in our society, um, It's something that really we have to strive for. We have to work towards this issue of maturity. And when we fail to grow up, and just leave the spiritual side of it out, but if if you and I fail to grow up as men, here's some of the problems I think it brings. First of all, it brings personal problems, doesn't it? In your home, it can cause tension between your wife. It can cause problems with your kids. When we fail to grow up, when we fail to act our age... It can cause lots of issues in our personal lives. It causes definite problems in our homes, between our wives, between our kids, because we just, we don't handle things well. We don't respond well. We are selfish and self-centered, much like little kids can be. Well, we can be the same way. It can definitely cause problems at work. When we are immature at work and how we handle difficult situations and we we gossip and we bicker and we whine and we complain and it's a, it's a sign of immaturity but the scary part is it can cause lots of problems in the church when we fail to grow up when we fail to act our age and these areas are caused by immaturity more than anything else these problems it's just flat out immaturity And basically, what I get from the book of James, and there's a ton of stuff in the book of James. It's five chapters long, but it is chock full of incredible insights. But the main one that keeps coming back to me is this issue of you got to grow up. Ken, you've got to grow up. Act your age. Begin to mature. Continue to mature. Don't get flatlined. Don't get satisfied. But continue to grow up as a man and as a believer. Keep Growing Up. And this book is going to be highly practical. Uh, it's, it's a very much in-your-face kind of a book, and we'll see why. It's a little bit different in the way that it's written, in, in the sense that it's, it's a letter that is more of a... It's isolated thoughts that have been put together. There is a theme, but you may find it as you read through it, if you, if you got a chance this last week to read through the book of James, it kind of jumps around a little bit. And it's believed that it was probably a collection of either sermons or talks that were then compiled and edited together. And it kind of comes across that way. So it's not necessarily a nice flowing document, but it's got a lot of different insights and thoughts that seem a little bit disconnected, but there is a theme, as we'll see, and one of them is this issue of maturity. If Christians, you and I, especially men, would grow up we would become victors instead of victims. Victors instead of victims. We would handle circumstances better. You ever uh, got into this victim mentality, you know, where things just aren't going your way and, well, you know, something happens at work and it's just, man, I can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe that happened to me. I can't believe my boss treats me that way. And we become these victims instead of victors, handling the difficulties that come this way because... As this book starts out, in verse 2, the verse we all know and love to quote to other people, but hate to have it quoted to us. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How does James start out? You're going to go through trials. You're going to have difficulties in life. Wouldn't you rather be a victor than a victim in in the midst of those trials and difficulties? I would. I don't want to walk through life a victim. I want to be victorious in life. And that's really what James is all about. So what's the intent of this book? Encouragement to spiritual maturity. I really feel like that's the intent of the, the writing of the letter of James. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit about who wrote it and why it's written before we start diving into it next week. All you have to do is look at verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. What does it say? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's really the purpose of this book, that you may be complete, mature, lacking in nothing. Man, I would love to be lacking in nothing. I would love, you know, this is, what, April 16th? Some of us are lacking in something today, aren't we? Um, Money. But, you know, that's not what this is talking about. This is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Spiritually whole and complete. So spiritual maturity is is really the intent. I love the way J.B. Phillips' translation uh, takes this verse. It says, You find you have become men of mature character, men of integrity, with no weak spots. That's his goal. That's the reason this letter has been written. Men of mature character, men of integrity, with no weak spots. Man, that's a lofty goal. That's a lofty intent. But that's the reason I want us to study this book together, because I think that's really the goal of everyone in this room. What's the theme? It's developing a living faith. A living faith. There's a, there's a verse in here that, you again, you're very familiar, familiar with, and it's prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, live it. You say you believe this stuff, but do you live it? Does it come out in the way you live your daily life? Live the faith you say you have. You know, one of the things that I think is uh, apparent in our society today is people are not necessarily attracted to the church. Why? It's not Jesus. And it's not necessarily the offer. They're just not attracted to us. Because what do they see? They see a certain level of hypocrisy, and they don't really see much evidence that what you believe makes a difference in your life. And it should. We should have a living faith. We should be growing in maturity, and we should have a faith that is evident around us. And much of the controversy over the, the years and over the centuries over this book have been based on a misunderstanding, and we'll, we'll see more of that as we move along. But James is just really saying, if you say you believe this, it ought to start showing up in the way you live your life. Every aspect of your life. The New Living Translation translates it this way. Remember, it is a message to obey, not just to listen to. If you don't obey, you're only fooling yourself. You're only fooling yourself. And man, what a a word of encouragement to the church today. Do you really believe it? Then obey it. And let it filter out into the way you live your life. Then I think people would walk up to us and go, what is it that's different about you? Not what church do you go to. Not what religion are you. But what's different about the way you live your life? It's a living, breathing faith. The letter of James deals with outward fruits of faith. Outward fruits. Uh, And you're going to see that this is a letter written to believers... And he's telling these believers, you ought to have some fruit in your life. It ought to be visible. People ought to be able to see it. You know, we shouldn't necessarily have to tell people, hey, I'm a Christian. They ought to be able to look at us and go, that guy's a Christian. There's something different about him. It should be visible. It should be something that they can see. Their outward fruits of faith. A faith that's visible to those around you. Your wife... If you have one, your kids, if you have them, your neighbors, your co-workers, they should be able to look at you and see your faith through their own eyes. It's a faith that produces results. You know, it it, it has an impact on the way we live. Uh, Does yours, does your faith really produce results in your life? It's a faith that grows in times of adversity. I'm reading a book, actually I'm listening to a book right now uh, by Ravi Zacharias, and it's called The Grand Weaver. And, and it's really a great book, and it's all about how God is weaving our lives together. And one of the, the things he talked about that's, that's really impacted me is this issue of if you're weaving a tapestry, um, a tapestry is made up of threads, little bitty threads, and they're all different colors, right, depending on what, what tapestry you're making. And one of the things he pointed out is that in my life and in your life, we want to tell God, the master weaver, what colors to use. And so he talks about the fact that I don't want any dark threads in my tapestry because dark represents the bad stuff, the tough times, the difficulties. And so I pretty much, I pray that God will take out all the darks out of my tapestry of life. I just want the bright things. I want the golds and the silvers and I want the bright colors, the reds and the yellows and I just but what happens if you take the dark threads out of a tapestry? What do you lose? You lose contrast. You lose vibrancy because if you take the dark out, even the brights look dim. There's no contrast. And how we want to tell God to remove all the difficulties. But how do we grow? we I don't know about you, but I grow more in adversity than I do in prosperity. And it's pretty much the story of Christianity and the church. We grow in times of adversity. Why? Because that's when we need God. And that tends to be when we turn to God. So it's a faith, as people look at us and they, they see us growing when things are tough. And they go... How do you do that? How have you been able to grow in the midst of what you've been going through? And there are guys in this room this morning I know who have really gone through some tough times over the last year, maybe the last month. And God has a purpose. God is weaving a tapestry with your life. And you're going to look back and you're going to see how God's hand was all over that situation, as difficult as it was. It's a faith that makes us talk, think, and act differently. It's a living faith. And it shows up in every area of our life. The way we talk, the way we think, the way we act. So it's outward fruits of faith. And it's a faith that we're going to see in this book that results in answered prayers. You know, do you want your prayers answered? I do. Now, part of the problem with unanswered prayers for me is I I, I pray with the wrong attitude, and I pray. Uh, selfishly and I pray for the wrong reasons. Uh, As I said, I can pray for God to take difficulties away. And very rarely have I seen those prayers answered. And I think it's because God knows what He's doing. I just don't want the difficulty. But I do want answered prayers. I do want to see God moving in my life and in your life and answering our prayers. And this book is going to deal with that. Because real faith... Living faith results in answered prayers. Well, here's what I want you to do in your first table discussion. And if you're sitting at a table with just a handful of guys and you want to move in with another table, do it just to get more more discussion going on. You're going to read First John chapter four, verses ten through nineteen. And here's what I want you to discuss. What do you learn from this passage regarding God's love for us and how that love should trans- that should translate into love for others? So why are we talking about loving one another? That's what we talked about last week. We talked about the love of God. But it's interesting as we look at these verses and we look at, okay, God loves me, God is love, and I'm to love others. But what what does it say in verse 20? You you didn't read this one, but look at verse 20. If, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Then he goes on, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. See, this is... This is practical stuff. This is about living faith. You know, to sit around and say, ah, oh, man, I love God, but I hate you. There's just something wrong with that picture, guys. Um, man, I love coming to church. I love being one my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I can't stand my wife. There's something wrong with that picture. Man, I love Jesus, and I, man, I'd die for Jesus, but man, I'd love to kill my boss. There's something wrong with the picture. See, this is about practical Christianity. This is about living out what we say we believe. This is what the book of James is going to be all about. See, we can sit here and we can talk about ways to love one another and love our brothers, and we need to. But how do we pull that off? How do we make it practical? How do we make it every day? And what's going on in our culture? This is from George Gallup, who's a... Christian pollster, but listen to what he says about Christianity today. He says, the religious or spiritual condition of Americans today can perhaps be best described in terms of gaps. First, there's an ethics gap. The difference between the way people think of themselves and the way they actually are. The way I think of myself and the way I actually am. Well, I'm a pretty good guy. I go to church. I work for the church. But is there a difference between that and the way I really am? Religion is highly popular in this country but surely evidence suggests that it does not change people's lives to the to the degree one would expect from the level of professed faith. I guarantee if you went up and down this block most of the people probably 80 to 90% would say they believe in God. Many of them would say they're born again. But they don't go to church. And it doesn't make a heck of a difference in the way they live their lives. Profess faith, but it doesn't show up in real life. Second, there's a knowledge gap. The gap between Americans' stated faith and their lack of the most basic knowledge about that faith. Do you, do you know what you believe? Do, do you know the scriptures? Do you, you know... If somebody asks you to find a book of the Bible, can you find it? And I'm not not making light of you or making fun of you. But, guys, we need to know what we say we believe. We need to study the Word of God. We need to know the basic doctrines of this church. You know, this this summer we're going to offer some classes on the basic doctrine of the faith. Because many of us don't know them. We don't know what we believe. And according to George Gallup, it's a problem. It's a problem in the church. And as we look at the book of James, you know this is not like the book of Romans. You know, Romans is a really deep theological book that you sit and you read it, and you're not sure you understand it, and you read it again, and then you know you don't understand it, and then you go find somebody to explain it to you. That is not what the book of James is. The problem with the book of James is you're going to understand it. You're just not going to want to deal with it. You know, you're, you, it's very clear. It's written for me. It's written for you. It's not deep. It's a letter that deals with very practical, everyday Christian experiences and situations. So if, 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 you, if you don't have a quiet time right now, if you're one of those guys that like, man, I don't even know where to begin, begin here. Let this be your quiet time for the next couple of months. Just study the book of James and let's do it together. Because it's going to be highly practical and you're going to find something for everyday life on every page and practically every verse and the author of this book is is really issuing a call he's issuing a call and it's needed today it's a call that i need to hear and you need to hear what's it a call to conduct conformable to creed in other words you're going to live according to what you say you believe we as a church have a creed we have a belief system we have doctrine that we believe We should live according to what we say we believe. It should impact the way we live. It should be behavior that is commensurate with belief. Again, it shows up. It's real life stuff. And it's deportment, which is just another big word for behavior. Deportment compatible with doctrine. What am I saying here, guys? What am I saying? It's a life... That matches what you say you believe. That's what this little book, James, five chapters long, this letter, is all about. Live a life that matches what you say you believe. because you know what the world doesn't need. It doesn't need any more advice. It doesn't need any more oprahs. you know it it, it doesn't need anybody else throwing out handy words of wisdom. What it needs is people who are living something that works. We don't need any more new books. There are more books to read than we can shake a stick at. We don't need anybody else telling us one more thing to do that will change our lives. Five steps to the better this, ten steps to the better that. We need to live out what we say we believe. And it will make a difference not only in my life, it will make a difference in the world and the people around me. Live a life that matches what you say you believe. Well, who wrote this book? Sounds like a stupid question, doesn't it? It's the book of James. Well, there's a lot of debate over who James was. Which one was it? Because there's at least four, Some something even more James is m- mentioned in the scriptures, and there's a lot of options when it comes to who wrote the book of James. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because, you know what, I don't really care. Because... It's here. I believe it's the Word of God. I do have an opinion, and I'm going to share it with you. I know you're shocked at that. But I think I know who it is, who I believe it is. But let's go through some of the options. Is it James, the son of Zebedee? Because he's, he's a potential option. Yeah, he was one of the, the fishermen that were called by Jesus. Uh, he's a brother of John, they were the sons of thunder. And uh, they were nicknamed that because they were kind of impetuous and impulsive. And uh, was it him? Did he write it? Most people don't think he did because he died too early. Um, he, he died a martyr's death. He was killed by Herod. And so we don't think he's one of the, he's the one that wrote this. How about James, James the son of Alphaeus? We don't know a whole lot about this guy. Uh, but most don't believe that he wrote it because... The way this letter starts out, it says, James, a bondservant of God. It doesn't say a whole lot else. So the assumption is whoever received this letter knew who James was. Most people wouldn't have known James, the son of Alphaeus. How about James, the father, father of Judas, the apostle? Again, very obscure, not a whole lot of references to him. Most people don't think it was this guy. There's a fourth option that I find intriguing is it's, it's some unknown author who just decided to pin this book and then put James's name on it because he was well-known, but he didn't really write it. I don't particularly buy that one. I don't think that's the case. So here's who I, thought, I think wrote it. It's James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. That's who I think wrote this book, and we'll, we'll expand on that. He's probably the most likely candidate. Most scholars believe he's the one that wrote it. And it's interesting that when he came along, again, he's the half-brother of Jesus, uh, he did not believe in Jesus when Jesus walked the earth, when Jesus was teaching and preaching. He didn't believe in him as the Messiah. John 7, verse 5 tells us that. It says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So he grows up in the same household. He's a half-brother, but he doesn't believe in who Jesus claims him to be. They even thought he was crazy. They thought he lost his mind. So here, this guy grows up with Jesus, and you imagine that? You imagine growing up with Jesus? Man, I thought I thought it was hard growing up with my sister, you know, because she was like straight A student, never did anything wrong, always, you know, took the straight and narrow. And I, boy, I was just the opposite. I cannot imagine growing up with Jesus, you know, because he never lied. He probably never got in trouble. I mean, let's. He was sinless. Now I don't want to grow up with a sinless, you know, sibling. Most of them think they are, but mine weren't. But James didn't believe in his own brother, and it didn't happen until later in life. He became a disciple after the resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and something clicked there. Uh, so didn't believe in him when he walked the earth. But when he came after the resurrection, then he had faith in him. Acts 1, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Uh, James came to faith in Christ, his half-brother. I believe he's the guy that wrote this book. He later became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. uh, A significant leader as we've been studying through the book of Acts. We've talked about him. Um, And I think there's a reason for him writing this. And it will make sense as we move along. Galatians two nine says, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. This is Paul writing, when they recognized the grace given to me. James was a leader in the church, the church in Jerusalem. Uh, those believers in Christ who would come to faith in Christ, and it blossomed in the city of Jerusalem. And then what happened after the resurrection of Jesus? It began to move out, right? It began to spread out to the known world. Well, who's this guy writing to? Who is James, this leader in the church, half-brother Jesus, who's he writing to? Right there in verse 2, you you see it. He says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. The 12 tribes. Who are the 12 tribes? Well, it's the Jews. He's writing to Jews who are living outside the land of Palestine. They're they're dispersed. That word is uh, where we get the word uh, diaspora. The dispersion. They've been spread out. Uh, it's not a positive word, it's a negative word. They have been spread out because of persecution. And they're all over the known world at this time. And he's writing to those Jews. This is not about the dispersion that takes place after the fall of the, the temple in A.D. 70, thereabouts. It's, it's the much earlier dispersion. Those who were dispersed as a result of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Remember, back in the Old Testament when the people of Israel got taken into captivity... Some returned, many didn't. And they ended up spread out all over the the known world. And there are Jews, pockets of Jews living all over the place. But he's not just writing to Jews spread out. He's writing to a specific group. It's interesting, too, that when um, Jesus goes to the Feast of Pentecost, or uh, at the Feast of Pentecost, after the disciples had gone there, Jesus has gone back into glory he tells them, tells them to go to Jerusalem, and something significant happens at the Feast of Pentecost. Jews from all over the world would come to Pentecost, an annual feast, to, to participate. And they, they came, and what happened? What happened in Acts chapter 2? In a miraculous thing, the disciples began to speak in, in tongues that they didn't even know. And they impacted all these Jews that had come for the, the Feast of Pentecost, and many of them became believers. We see that, that in these verses. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Remember this is that miraculous event in Acts? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Look at the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. These people had come. The Holy Spirit had fallen on the disciples. They speak in these languages. They preach. Many people come to Christ. And it's many of these people. Where did most of them go when they were done? They went home. They went back into their countries. Phrygia, Asia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya. They went back to where they lived and they went back believers. And so James is writing to these people. They've gone home. And you're going to see that there's a theology of suffering all throughout the book of James. And if you're suffering today, this is the book for you. If you're not suffering yet, you will be. Uh, This book has something for you. It's a theology of suffering. Why? Because these people have gone back and they're the lone believer, many of them, in their own communities. There aren't a whole lot of Christians when they go home. And so he's writing about how do you handle that. He's writing to Jews who happen to be believers all over the known world. And this is an encyclical. This is not a letter to the Corinthians. This is not a letter to the Galatians. This is not a letter to the Philippians. This is is a letter that was circulated all over that area to all these churches. It It got spread around because he's writing to all of them, to Christian Jewish believers who happen to be living all over the known world. And he addresses them 19 times as brothers. That's why we know he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to just Jews. He's talking to believers. James 2.1 is going to make it clear that these were brothers in the Lord, not, not Jewish brothers. Okay, These are Christian brothers. Look at what it says. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. He's writing to Jewish Christian believers who happen to be spread all over kingdom come. And that will make sense as we move along in this book. They were probably poor. They were probably oppressed. okay? Because you accept Jesus Christ in that day and age and you go home, it ain't a pretty picture. You're not welcome back into the community. Your family, your pagan family doesn't go, oh, faith in Jesus Christ, who is he? They don't even know about him yet. But they're not tickle pink because you're turning your back on your God to worship another God. They were rejected by the Gentiles because they were Jews. In other words, they're already Jews living in Gentile countries, so they're already hated for that. Now they're going to become Christian Jews. It's like a double whammy; they lose out twice. They're rejected by Jews because they're Christians. So at least you got your little group of Christian or Jews that you live with in Phrygia, and there's not a whole lot of you, and you got your synagogue, and you got well, at least we we got each other. Now you walk back into your community and go, "Oh well, I, now I'm a follower of Christ." Well, you're out. So now you're out of the synagogue but you're also rejected by the Gentiles. These people were definitely oppressed. Again, James 2, verses 6 and 7 are going to indicate that they were poor and oppressed by the rich. That they were were hammered in every, every which way. You have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So even the rich, even... Rich Jews are harassing these people. These people are poor, they're oppressed, they're aliens. So what's, what's he writing these people for? What's the purpose of this letter? They were having problems in their personal lives, and it was showing up in the church. It was showing up in the church. Did you know we have problems in this church? You know where they come from? You. There's all kinds of problems in this church, and we cause them. It's not just you, it's me. We bring problems into the church. I've often said, I used to say this about advertising. Advertising would be a wonderful career if it didn't involve people and money. You know, the church would be a wonderful institution if it didn't involve people. But it does. And we all bring our problems to the church. And their personal lives... If you're oppressed and you're poor and you're being oppressed by the rich or you've been kicked out of your home and you come to the church, and are you going to just leave that at home? No, you're bringing it with you. And when it comes to prayer time, I think it was probably a competition. You know, hey, wait a minute, my prayer is worse than yours. I think these people were just hammered and they were coming together and it was causing problems in the church. And and here's just some of the things we're going to discover as we go through the book of James. They were encountering difficult trials. That's why it starts out, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. They were undergoing trials. They were facing temptations to sin. Just like we are today. They were hearing, but not doing. Because why else would James write this letter? Why would he say the things he's doing? Unless this was the fact. They were showing favoritism to the rich. Hey, if you're poor and oppressed and a rich person comes into your church, who are you going to suck up to? You're not going to suck up to the guy that's as poor as you are. You're going to suck up to the rich guy. And that's what they were doing. Why? Because of their circumstances. Tough times. They were being oppressed by the rich. So the very people they're sucking up to are oppressing them and taking them into court. They were competing for positions in the church. All of this shows up in this letter. Everybody was jockeying for position. And they were having a real hard time controlling their tongues. Watching what they were saying. There was a general worldliness in their church. And again, I don't blame them, man. They're living in a pagan culture. They've been kicked out of the synagogue. They're they're just surrounded by worldliness and it creeps into the church. Has worldliness creeped into this church? Your silence, you know, condemns you. Uh, yeah, it's all over the place. Worldliness has creeped in. And it, it, it's inherent in the... We live in a worldly culture. And it, it, it creeps into my life. And it creeps into the church because it's creeped into my life. We bring it with us. They did as well. And then they were straying from the faith. They were, they were kind of getting off track. And so James is calling them back saying, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Don't leave the faith. Don't get messed up. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like it might be kind of practical? I hope so because this is what it's all about. See, these, this is not just like this array of unrelated, isolated topics. You know, it's like when you read through Proverbs and it's just like one verse after the other and they jump all over the place. That's not what this is about. There is a method to the madness. And the common cause in all the problems we just looked at is spiritual immaturity. Many of the problems you and I struggle with, we struggle with because we're not mature spiritually. We don't know how to handle it and so we react in the wrong way. We say the wrong thing. We do the wrong thing. We panic. We pout, we yell at one another, we fight with one another. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. And so he calls them to grow up, become mature. That was their greatest need. You've got to grow in the faith. You've got to mature. They were a lot like little children. Impatient in difficulties. And see, this is why we're starting out with this lesson. Why don't you just grow up? Are you ever impatient in difficulties? Do you ever respond in the wrong way when something goes wrong? Get a flat tire. Kid wrecks your car. Something just... And you just, you're just you just impatient? They were like little children because they were talking but not living the truth. They were just spouting words but it wasn't showing up in their life. They had damaging speech. You know that kids can be some of the harshest people around? I mean... It's not easy being a kid. You know, I, I remember growing up as a kid and growing up in New York, and it, it was not fun sometimes because kids can be really harsh and demeaning, and it's a sign of immaturity. But the truth is, some of us still struggle with the same thing. They were fighting, they were coveting. You know, hey, that's mine. No, that's mine. I want that position. No, I want that position. They were, I, I want what he has. I'm going to suck up to the rich guy. Maybe I can... It's immaturity. They were trusting in material things. They they thought if they could just get more, they'd be happy. But we all know the answer to that one, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't make you happy over the long haul. He's also writing to fulfill a great need in the church today. And that great need is spiritual maturity. They have a problem... Spiritual immaturity, they have a need, spiritual maturity. See, God is looking, guys, for mature mature men. Why? And we've talked about this when we did the call. Get in the game. You're to carry on His work. You're to take your faith seriously in every aspect of your life. You're to live lives characterized, and I'm just going to put up a list here, and we're just going to look at it real quickly. These things, these are all from the book of James. Joy in trials, humility, patience. A tongue that you can bridle and control. Prayerfulness. You're attentive to God's Word. You know how to apply God's Word. You know how to endure. You have self-control. You're fruitful in your faith. And you exhibit godly wisdom. See, this is what he's interested in. This is what I'm interested in for me and for you. Instead, what does he find in the church? The churches that he's writing to. This is what he finds. A lot of whiners, a lot of powders, cheaters, liars, flatterers, quitters, self-sufficient individuals, self-made individuals, guys who are lustful, prideful, boastful, and angry. A lot of the same problems we have today. See, I don't want to stay in this list. I don't want this to be the characteristics of my life. I want the other one to be the characteristics of my life. And that's why this book is so important for you and I. Let Let me close with this verse from Hebrews. Listen what it says, and it goes right along with what you just read. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, every one of you, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of the practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Press on to maturity. That is what this book is going to be about. That's what this study is going to be about. And I hope you'll come every morning ready to talk about this. <laughs> Otherwise, this is what we look like to the world, guys. This is abnormal. Uh, I, I, I'll share this closing story. When I was growing up in New York, and some of you have heard the story before, uh, one winter... I used to shovel snow uh, to make money in the winter. And there was an elderly couple. He was a retired pastor that lived in our neighborhood. And I went and knocked on their door. And we'd had a great snow. And I was making all kinds of money. And um, I asked if they wanted me to, to shovel their driveway. And he said, oh, sure, we'd love for you to do that. So I was out there. I worked. I did my job. And I went and knocked again to get paid. And they invited me in. And uh, would you like some hot cocoa? And I said, yeah, sure, that's great. Just give me my money. And... <laughs> As I'm drinking my hot coke, cocoa, I hear uh, I hear a baby crying. And I'm thinking, well, they must be babysitting a grandchild or something like that. And uh, the elderly woman said, well, oh, would you like to meet so-and-so? And I was like, uh, sure. I mean, I was probably in junior high. I, you know, I don't want to see a baby, but you know, if it will make me get my money faster, sure. <laughs> so she said, well, come, come with me. So we go up the stairs in their house, walk into a room, and it's decorated like a little... Infant's room, but when I walk over to the crib, in the crib is a 30 year old woman who is still a baby. And I remember as a kid, it was their daughter, and I don't know the disease she had, I don't know the disorder she had, but she never grew beyond a certain size. And for 30 years, they had cared for this daughter. Now I was in junior high, I looked in that crib, And I knew something's wrong. This is not normal. And I wanted to run from the room. But that picture has stuck in my mind all these years because to me that is a picture of you and I when we do not mature. It's abnormal. It's not the way God intended. It's not right. And we need to grow. We need to mature. We need to move beyond And my prayer for you, my prayer for me as we study this book together is that we will take it seriously, that we will spend time in it and we will apply it to our lives and watch God give us a living, vibrant faith that those around us will begin to see and be attracted to. Well, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these guys. I pray that you would draw them over the next weeks and months into this book. That they would spend time in it, that they would read it, that they would study it, that they would pray about it, that they would begin to apply it and see what you want them to do with what they're going to hear. Father, don't let us go through the motions. Uh, don't let us just kind of rush in, rush out, and never do anything with what we hear to be hearers and not doers. That is not what you've called us to. May we be men who are doers, who take what we hear and we do something with it. And may we develop a living, vibrant, maturing faith that makes a huge difference in the way we live our lives. Now, Father, as we go, I know there are men who've got a lot of pressing things going on in their lives, a lot of worries, a lot of cares, a lot of concerns. May you step alongside them today and assure them that you are with them and that you love them. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.